The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club for the month of November 2017. I'm Katie Waldman, a staff writer at Slate, and I'm joined today by Slate book critic Laura Miller. Hi, Laura. Hi, Katie. Um, and by the critic and writer and Audio Book Club founder, Megan O'Rourke. Hi, Megan. Hi. Before we get started, I wanted to let you all know that next month we're discussing Emily Wilson's new translation of The Odyssey. Uh, Wilson is the first woman ever to translate a Homeric epic, or at least to produce a commercial translation with wide distribution that I know of, um, that we know of. So we're very excited to dive into that. Uh, Wilson also appeared on the Culture Gap Fest, so be sure to check out that great discussion. Today, we are conversing about Manhattan Beach, the fourth novel from Jennifer Egan, who won the Pulitzer Prize in 2011 for her really dazzling book, A Visit from the Goon Squad. Um, Manhattan Beach is, as all the reviews have been tirelessly repeating, an extremely different kind of book. Um, It's a historical novel about World War II divers and gangsters and sailors and longshoremen. It is formally intricate, but not formally innovative or even necessarily innovative in any sense, as you argue in your review, Laura. Um, It centers on three main characters, a plucky young woman, Anna, her father, Eddie, and the mysterious criminal Dexter Stiles, with whom they both become entangled instead of 15 or so characters, which was the case for her goon squad. Um, It is, of course, beautifully written and exhaustively researched. So in that sense, it feels like the Egan we know. Um, But I wanted to ask both of you whether your expectations about this author, Jennifer Egan, shaped your experience of this book and how you feel it fits into her career. Um, Were you surprised or disappointed, or you thought there's a pretty continuous line um, from what she's done in the past to here? So I'd be curious um, to hear what either of you guys think about that. Well, um, I definitely, when I, the more I heard about it before I read it, the less enthusiastic I became about it, because Mm -hmm. I had seen Jenny Gunna's writing you know, in a really, I, I wouldn't say, you know, experimental mode, but in a, in an, in an innovative mode within like the sort of mainstream, the framework of the mainstream novel. Um, I really loved The Keep, which is the book that she published before Goon Squad. And that was a sort of pseudo gothic and, um, a great sort of first person narration that, that, um, was, just completely absorbing and and fun in a way that her first book, which was sort of a Dondolillo-esque sort of chilly exploration of postmodern life in a world of images and false identities, um, it didn't really enchant me in the same way. And then I loved Goon Squad, which seemed even more adventurous in its way. And then this just sounded in every way very conventional and um and then when i when it finally came time to read it i i found myself really you know kind of slowly just seduced into its traditionalism and more and more appreciative of that so i do think it is a departure from both what she's done before and the sort of trajectory that she seemed to be on but on the other hand at the moment that i read it it was really exactly the thing that i needed hmm. 
Yeah, it's, so it's a historical novel, and on the face of it, a historical novel would seem to be almost kind of in the, as it was Laura saying, in the opposite direction of the kind of postmodern antics, very fractured story and, and formally inventive story uh, stories told in A Visit to the Goon Squad. Um, it's a really, it's a really, it's not the novel one might have thought she would write next, and yet the more I thought about it, the more. I did see continuities um, between this novel and her previous novels. They just weren't the continuities I was expecting to find exactly, you know. And um, so it's, she's one thing I think we see from this book is just how adept she is. I mean, she, she does just such an extraordinary job of, for the most part, of making this world of Brooklyn um, in the mid-century so realized, and I live quite near the waterfront that she's talking about, and it's, you know, and I always think about it and wonder about it in the Navy Yard and what it used to be like, and it's it's been kind of it was kind of wonderful to see it animated in her, in her pages, and I think her exploration of the sea and of diving, which is a big part of the book, is, is really a great sort of accomplishment. Um, it's a strange book though, because in some ways it's quite withholding of the pleasures that you might think a historical novel would have or a novel of this sweeping intergenerational scope. Um, and we can talk more about that later. But there's some formal things she does with time and fragmenting of stories that almost seemed a little bit more like the old Egan and maybe worth talking about. Which What are the continuities that you, uh, that you noticed that um, you didn't expect to see? Basically, I was interested in the way that time skips around in this book, which, um, you know, can happen in a historical novel. But in some ways, the way time skips around almost frustrated my sense of desire for like certain key scenes to follow upon other key scenes in particular between Anna and her father. Um, we meet her father. We meet an 11 year old girl named Anna Kerrigan at the very beginning of the book with, with her father, Eddie. Um, she's going to visit. She doesn't really know his name at the time, but this man named Dexter Stiles, who's, you know, involved in the underworld and turns out to run clubs and all these things. And so there's this kind of brief encounter from her perspective a kind of close third, if I remember correctly. Um, and we get a lot of the threads of the book and it's a kind of little touchstone scene. And then we skip forward from 1934 to World War II and, and her father has disappeared. And he doesn't re-enter the book for quite some time. And when he does, I had almost moved so fully into Anna's world that I was less in need of the satisfactions of discovering his story than I had been earlier in the book but then we go into his story for quite a long time. So I thought the structure of the book was very interesting and sort of challenging in that way because it kept sort of slightly subverting the narrative arc of the historical novel while also giving it to us, but kind of skipping over maybe some of the moments. Like There's a key moment in the, in the book, um, which is told to us in, in recollection rather than, and it has to do with why Eddie flees, um, I don't know. So there's something very interesting about it where it was sort of giving us some of the pleasures of the historical novel and then slightly withholding them or doing things that were a little bit unorthodox if she really were a kind of more conventional historical novelist, or, or so I thought. Isn't then, that partly because she doesn't, she wants it to be unclear what happened to Eddie? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because Anna thinks he's dead? Exactly. No, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, but then thematically, I thought this sort of the relationship between the siblings. Um, and the sense of loss um, is something that she really returned, you know, in, I saw in a visit to the Boone Squad in different ways. And so there's things like that that felt like, 
you know, this kind of failure of language to really, in a way that sort of a breakdown of language can bring you closer to a moment of connection than using language in um, more conventional ways, for example. Yeah. One thing that I found very persuasive, there was an Atlantic piece on this piece, um, uh, on this book that said that the sea is kind of uh, fulfilling the function in this book that time did in Goon Squad. So this sort of like difficult to pin down mystery, this force that was kind of acting on all the characters in ways that they couldn't quite understand um, and just something that she keeps trying to penetrate and that sort of resists all of those efforts. Um, And I do like that idea of sort of like a hole at the center of each of these books that's like kind of occupied by a theme, but a theme that you can't really get your hand around all the way. Um, And I thought like sort of the building up of the sea, like the symbolism of the sea. And as you say, it's linked to like the murmur of the sea is linked to the sort of proto speech of Lydia, who's this disabled sister. Um, and there is, uh, she's, I, I hope we can talk a little bit about Lydia because it seems like she's doing a bunch of different things that are all kind of interesting. Um, but I, I did really, one of the things, and to put my cards on the table, I love this book. I read the reviews before, or read some of the reviews before reading the actual book and was worried because it seems like they were kind of dutiful and admiring, but not like passionately in love with the book. And I thought, oh, this is just going to be like a good historical novel by an author that everyone adores. And it's not going to be, you know, wonderful or like life changing. But then I read it and I just got so much pleasure out of it. So, um, but in any case, one of the things that I really appreciated about the book was her writing about the sea, both on the sentence level and just sort of like what she built out of the sea as a theme. It's fascinating because they, you know, except for Eddie, they, and even Eddie in his own way, they, except at this, at, at, in the, in his moment of extremists, they have, they have so, it's so remote from them, the sea. You know, even when Anna finally goes diving, she doesn't actually go diving in the sea. Right. She goes <laughs> diving in the river. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's like the war in that it's far away from them. I mean, I, I am a person who lo- really loved Goon Squad, but didn't really feel like, oh, this is a book about time. In the way that, say, many Kate Atkinson novels are, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, I was like, I don't under, I see how this book is about music, but I don't see how this book is about time. And so your formulation that it's about something that it can't ever really directly connect to, that it kind of circles around, is really interesting to me, Katie. But I think that there's the sea and then there's the war. And the mm-hmm. war is also far away. And yet both of these things give the people in the novel some feeling of meaning that it's really kind of surprisingly powerful considering how separated they are from those things. Yeah, that's a fascinating. Yeah. That's a fascinating part of the book, and maybe part of what I, I'm sort of groping toward and saying. I think that in some ways it resists some of the conventions you might think. You know, in, a, in the hands of a, a less innovative novelist, um, you know, we might have found. So, the closest we get to the sea is near the end, right? When we get that long passage with Eddie, you know, out um, on these ships and they come under attack at some point. 
Um, but, and yeah, he's in war, a shipwreck. Yeah. Yeah. The war is the war is this the war is this faraway machine. Like it's like an engine thrumming in the background for all the characters, but not in the foreground for them. And there was something so rich about that because, of course, that was so many so many women's experiences certainly. And I thought that was something she conveyed just extraordinarily powerfully. Um, the way that women were shaped by the war and what, you know, what happened to them, what possibilities opened up for them, what possibilities didn't open up for them, what, and even what happened afterward, which is kind of telegraphed a little bit in the end of the book. So you brought up gender, gender dynamics. And, um, I, I don't know. I thought that that was also a really, fascinating part of the book and I really appreciated conversations um, that read so differently now like there was one great um, moment when Anna's uh, friend at the naval shipyard where she works says listen um, your supervisor seems to like you and everyone is going to think that it's just because he wants to have sex with you. Um, and Anna realizes, no, that's what everyone thinks. But actually, he is sort of alert to my talent. And that's why he's giving me special treatment. And to me, it was like such a reversal of now where, um, where everyone assumes or you, you hope to assume that when a male like authority figure shows favor to, um, an employee, even if it's a female employee, it's because he detects some sort of talent. But then actually maybe like your, the scales fall from your eyes and you realize that he has some kind of romantic or sexual interest. And the idea that it was reversed <laughs> in the, uh, in in the 40s uh, kind of made me laugh. <laughs> yeah. um, I also uh, really enjoyed the conversation where this incredibly sexist sort of battle axe of a lieutenant who's been hazing Anna particularly um, sort of rigorously and cruelly. I, I mean, he's not a cruel character. You come to like him, but um, he certainly is not like an equal-minded uh, man. Uh, when she wants to transfer to California, he sits her down and says like very affectionately, listen, not everyone says... <laughs> Uh, forward-minded <laughs> as I am, you might encounter some misogyny in California. <laughs> and I just thought there are these kind of deft uh, touches, uh, just little um, jokes about uh, about gender relations that I I found really uh, fun and very much appreciated that in the book. Yeah, there was a moment where um, Dexter says to Anna when they when they first meet again, when she's a young woman rather than a child, where. He, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but um, she's telling him about her work at the Navy Yard, and this is before she begins diving. She's she's not yet diving. And he says something, well, is it natural for men and women to be working together like that? Um, you know, which feels like such a strange question on the one hand. On the other hand, it's, it, you know, as I was thinking about the book again in light of everything that's happened in the past couple months, it's like it feels like we still haven't answered that question. <laughs> well, like we're still not, right? We've, we, we never really managed to give... I don't know, to create a, a satisfactory answer to that question in a way that let everyone work together in peace. So. He, he's interesting because he wants it to be possible. He's like he this, this strange version of a manager who, who really wants to have women on his workforce but can't figure out how to do it. Yeah. And, um, and because he thinks there'll be less drama with them, which I think is so funny. <laughs> but um, but you know he has his ideas, and and he and he, there's this kind of he's like st struggling to sort of 
imagine that it could be possible. And I think, you know, it, even when they meet early on, and she's very sort of stoic about the cold water on her feet, and he thinks mm-hmm. that's what I wish my daughter was like. It's, right. you know, there's something sort of faded about them somehow connecting to do something. Although you, it, it's not really what you what I expected in the least. Just thinking again about Dexter Stiles, who's like this romantic, tragic hero, and he's like this glamorous gangster, but he wants to go straight, and he has like these, um, you know, progressive, sort of progressive ideas about gender relations, but he's also super chivalrous, as you pointed out in your review, Laura. Like, and, and then Anna, who is really tough and sort of plucky and, and, um, resists sort of social conformity and expectations for her time. Like, are these characters too idealized for you guys? Or did you find them to work? I think of 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 her character as being a cliche of contemporary historical fiction in some respects. Like, mm. every other historical novel is about a girl growing up in Restoration England who wants to be a doctor because her father's a doctor, but no one will let her. And then she figures out how to do it. And, you know, and then she has a romance. And it, like, it's like really a a really common trope of the female who typically aspires to some kind of profession or creative activity that her father usually practices and then has to, you know, defeat the all the prejudices against her. Um, so, you know, I, in a way, I was, again, I was like, when I heard that she became a diver, I was like, oh, I don't know, this sounds like really hokey, just like the old gangster that Dexter goes <laughs> to visit with his yes. tomatoes is really super hokey. And, um, but I, I don't know, I didn't really mind it in the end. I mean, I feel like the the story to me of this novel is less like, um, oh, you know, what does this mean or what does that mean as kind of the way that it makes you feel, which yeah, yeah. is just that it 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 like I I remember I was just lying in bed and I was th- thinking slow waves, slow waves, like my brain waves were slowing down and becoming sort of meditative and serene. And, 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 and maybe that has something to do with the sea images, because it was kind of like being by the side of, you know, the sea, you know, on a on a beach or quiet beach somewhere. And that here and those slow rhythms of the water, and that feeling that comes over you that you're in the presence of something sort of substantial and and deep and real and that that was the effect that this novel had on me which is so hard to communicate to other people i've tried to talk several people into reading it and they're like i don't know you know because they wanted to be about cell phones and social media or whatever like yeah. the way that we live now and um and I, I, it was like, this was like a cure to me. I mean, it, I, I'm not completely cured, obviously, because <laughs> eventually I relapsed into, into the internet again. But it, it felt like a cure for the internet in some ways. This is it. making me laugh yeah. so much, Laura, because <laughs> I read this book while I was on a trip for the Times to um, this national park outside of Seattle, which is supposed to be one of the quietest places in America. <laughs> no, and I was kidding. I read the book while I was, I read it on the start on the plane and in the pieces about silence and noise. And I was staying on a cabin on the water 
And I would hear these waves watching. It was the first time I'd been alone since my baby was born and my father had been sick. And I had exactly the same experience of just like I lay in bed all morning and read a book, which I haven't done in, you know, 16 months. And I was like, this is amazing. And I was completely immersed in the book after having had some of the same reservations hearing about it that you did. And even at the beginning, kind of resisting it a little bit, even though I was enjoying it and the writing is just, you know, she's such an exquisite craftsman of the image. Um, but it was, it's exactly what you talk about. But I sort of thought, oh, it's partly because I'm here alone in this quiet place with the ocean outside. <laughs> no, I had the same thing in my in no. my New York City apartment. So yeah, I think, and I think it's... you're right. It's the novel and it's that immersiveness that, you know, it reminds you of like why we do, why we want to read a historical novel. I mean, and I was really thinking too about this question of Anna as a cliche because I kept thinking, oh, she seems like a cliche. Why am I so interested in her? And I will say there were a couple points where my interest waned a tiny bit. There were a couple places where she stopped seeming, I don't know, quite as dimensional to me. And I can't identify exactly where they were. But then the diving became so dimensional that it, yeah. it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. But I think it was just like she was interesting. And in some of her very local observations, she was not cliche at all. So the way that she interacts with her friend Nell, who is the kind of cliche of the girl up for fun, like wanting to go to the club, like knowing how to dress, like read, you know, telling Anna to change her clothes and go out and have, she gives her champagne for the first time. But there's something about the way Anna observes Nell that is so particularized and so much, Mm. um, I think, written by a woman writing about how women think about each other that I was like, you know, in all the sort of cinematic cliches I've seen of these scenes, I've never, I've never actually enjoyed that quality of observation from this perspective in quite this way before. Yes, yeah, so, and yeah. so much of it is like that, the description of what it's like to live in this apartment in Brooklyn, to have this disabled sister and to mm-hmm. care for her and the re- way that changes your relationship with your mother, but it, but in, in, in also a very material sense, you know, like you felt like you had been in that apartment. Totally, and I think that right. relationship is a big part of why the book doesn't feel cliched, because how many times have I read, you know, that story, not very many in this setting, right? Usually you're sort of, you know, in the clubs and with the gangsters, not at home in the very claustrophobic apartment with the disabled sister. And I thought those parts of it in the way that Eddie related to her, I thought that was all just enormously complicated and tender and complex. Um, yeah, really wonderful. Yeah, her writing about sort of the domestic was kind of a surprise um, feat to me because I was expecting, you know, the sort of noir and the workplace stuff. And then when she talks about the family dynamics and talks about Lydia in particular, who I hope we can return to because, again, she's fascinating. But um, I thought that that was like a great strength of the book. And I also um, I, I wanted to read a quote from Egan who said that her aim was to write a book whose connections were felt rather than understood because I think that that sort of gets at the slow wave uh, quality that you were both talking about. There's kind of this uh, sense of submerged meaning and interconnectedness with these three characters who are all in the same room together in the first scene and then kind of disperse and the question is when they'll reconnect and in what way and sort of there is a sense of like a deeper pattern that characters are sort of blindly feeling with their hands and they can't they can't quite put it all together and neither can we um but the sort of sensuality of her description sort of has to do with that quality of of groping with your hands and and sort of feeling rather than thinking um and i again just i 
I'm resonating so much with the way you guys are talking about um, expecting to be put off by certain elements of this book and then being sucked in anyway. And I read it not on a retreat to a silent forest, but <laughs> um, but during Thanksgiving. And I realized that like my feelings about this book have completely mingled with my feelings about Thanksgiving and that I'm not <laughs> expecting some like deconstructed turkey dish that has never been made before. Like I sort of know what I want and it has been masterfully prepared um, men like many times before. Um, and yet that doesn't like negate the satisfaction of like a really wonderfully, <laughs> uh, uh, wonderfully cooked Thanksgiving meal and the whole experience. Like you just because you know what you're going to get. Um, and, and to be fair to her also, like there's a lot of surprise and sort of freshness in this book, but, but just because it's not sort of postmodern, um, doesn't mean that it is not like a really wonderful and pleasurable experience to have. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that it, that, um, that in a way the, the people that I've been trying to persuade to read this book think that they want this other thing and, you know, something more like Goon Squad, but actually there's something sort of weird and, and, and kind of spookily prescient about Jennifer Egan that she knew that this was actually the book that mm -hmm. I wanted to read yeah. instead of another sort of jangly, um, you know, uh, story of the hyper mediated life. It's funny, you know, I don't know if you guys read the, um, the Alexander Schwartz profile of her in the New Yorker, but Egan said something in that profile, which also made me think about the connection between the books. First of all, it's fascinating. There's a fascinating story in it. I hadn't known that she had dated Steve Jobs. Oh, really? What? Yeah, <laughs> yes. I hadn't known that. And so there's a great story of them. You know, she had dated when him when she was in college and she wrote him, I guess, near the end of when he had cancer and said something like, you know, you've accomplished everything you set out to do. And he said, oh, and you're the same. And, you know, thinking about that and the way she talks about technology in the piece made me really see where the technological, her ability to write presciently about kind of technology and where it's bringing us and the dark places it might bring us and the changed places it brings us, you know, kind of might have come out of that encounter, but that she obviously has a mind and a sensibility already interested in, like how, where are we going? Um, but in the New Yorker piece, she talks about, I'll just read the quote. She says something well, Alexander writes the, you know, about the um, attack at Pearl Harbor. The attacks felt like the end of something. The United States, oh no, she's sorry. I'm, she's talking about actually 9-11. The attacks felt like the end of something. The United States sense of itself as king of the world, snug in its supremacy. And then Egan says, and that led me to think, well, what was the beginning of that something? Somehow it felt like it was World War II, this violent conflict in which we played a critical but relatively small part in such a way that it left us quite unscathed and tremendously dominant. And it's a really, there's a really fascinating, to me, a really fascinating part of the book that has to do with Dexter. Dexter, at one point, sort of faithfully decides things are changing in the world and has a conversation with um, some of the older men in his life and thinks, oh, I'm going to sort of change the way I operate from being a, just a, a, a mob boss to something different. And it's because he sees this shift happening in the, in the country um, and it doesn't actually go so well for him. I don't know how much we want to get into that. But I don't know, reading that quote and thinking about that, I was like, oh, I, I do see a connection in a funny way to Goon Squad. It's like going back in time to look forward in time and to try to think about how this shift 
in a moment in time in terms of a, a nation's self-conception? What did it do to people's self-conception? And I thought that was a really fascinating through line of the novel, too. Yeah, and especially in the sense that like people who are unmoored may seek extremity. And so much of the book is about characters who 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 either seek or find extremity, whether it's because they are shipwrecked or they want to walk on the ocean floor. Um, both Dexter and Anna are sort of after that kind of experience. Um, Eddie finds it sort of um, not <laughs> not intentionally. But I, I think there is kind of a connection there between sort of feeling as though the world that you know is dissolving and then sort of being cast out and wondering, well, what do I do now? And so you sort of um, pursue the most kind of foreign and strange and marginal experience that you can. And I found that like convincing psychologically and interesting. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, Priceline. I was really interested in the diving aspect, like why she had selected diving. And, and in particular, it was it was amazing to think that she hadn't actually done this kind of diving because she describes it in such detail. And it's so sort of beautiful and terrifying at the same time because it's just so dangerous. And also this opportunity to you know, visit this invisible hidden, hidden world. So of course, now that I talk about it, I think, oh, well, no wonder she wrote about diving. But, um, but do you feel like that is a central metaphor of the book, the, the, the experience of diving? I think she's interested in underworlds, right? Yeah. Like the criminal mm -hmm. underworld yeah. and the, the underworld of the dead, um, because there are so many characters who are presumed dead or maybe dead. And sort of, it's a question of, what memories are dredged up. And, and of course, if a whole way of life is also dying, that's like, you know, uh, pre-World War II America cast into the underworld. Um, and so I think the being under the water is like a, a concretization of that. Um, but I wonder, Megan, what you think? I feel like it was both a metaphor, but also this almost, like we keep going back to the word hokey, um, almost hokey plot point that, also, that actually also managed to be incredibly unnerving and otherworldly and strange, which is, to me, there were two really key scenes that could have fallen flat that I thought she did well. One is the scene with Lydia at the sea, where she and Dexter take Lydia out to the sea um, at Dexter's house, I believe, right? Yeah. Right before, yeah. Um, shortly before Lydia ends up dying, and Lydia speaks. Um, she tries to communicate. She comes out of a kind of almost comatose, non-communicative state. And there's this moment, this really transcendent, really extraordinary moment of connection um, and and a life, right? Life kind of comes through her. And it's, it's really, I thought that was an amazing, amazing yeah. scene. And it, it kind of crystallizes many of the more metaphorical moments in the book, exploration of connection and family disruption and loss, um, different kinds of ways that loss shape a life and 
early stages and later stages. And then there's this other scene where Anna um, gets Dexter to come with her to search for her father's body, right? Yeah, because yeah. he supposedly knows where it is because he put right. it there. And you're thinking, yeah. okay, so are you, you're like, you know, in this weird friendship with this man that you think murdered your father or had right. him murdered? Right. It's very she, weird. It's very weird. And she doesn't tell him. And then finally she tells him. And, but they go, she goes diving and he ends up coming with her searching yeah. for her father's yeah. body. Yeah. And they map out this place and she ends up finding her father's watch, if I'm remembering correctly. And it's this scene that you're like, is this even plausible? <laughs> like, I don't, like the ocean just seems to me like so huge and dark. It's nighttime. It's totally dark, but it's an amazingly written scene that like almost fell apart for me on plausibility. But then I was like, she's got me. Like it's totally working. And I bet it is somehow plausible because that's how divers work, right? They're, they might be able to demarcate these zones and explore. And the whole point is that she can kind of find her way without her eyes, which is beautifully set up throughout the novel. So it's not like it comes suddenly. But it's an extraordinary scene, and it's a big plot point because it's sort of the moment where, you know, lots of things come together for Anna. Um, some of them false beliefs, but it, it sort of, it kind of sets her fate. It sets Dexter's fate. It's it's a very it's a really interesting scene. But it's it's do you know what I mean? Did you feel too like it's almost over the top? But it's kind oh of oh my god! When he yeah. decides to go down with her, I'm yeah. like, what? I know. Yeah, who would like, do that? Why? That's so insane. I know. Well, and also she yeah. does such a great yeah. job of like setting the table for how horrifyingly dangerous this is that I was like yeah. reading through my fingers, <laughs> like, no, Dexter, yeah. don't do this, yeah. please. I know. I know. Um, but also like the male arrogance of it, like the whole thing yeah. is so well done. Yeah. Like she's serious and everyone's serious at him. Like, yeah, really. And and he has that moment rising back up to the surface where he I, I forget what it's called, but he like pops up, like he comes mm-hmm. up too quickly, and as his brain is like doing crazy things based on like an inrush of oxygen or whatever the medicine, the medical reality of it is, um, he sort of starts hallucinating or fantasizing or something, and he has like some kind of revelation of like some truth that underlies all the other truths but he doesn't know how to articulate it and then when he reaches the surface he's forgotten what it was yeah um and it was just like another nod to this whole like bedrock of pre-verbal truth that she's kind of picking at um throughout the book um and again, it's like really interesting that all of those moments of like half words, half feeling happen in the space between, you know, the bottom of the ocean and and the air, um, because that's also what happens with Lydia. Like she speaks when they're on the ocean floor uh, or sorry, when they're on the beach, um, sort of in this liminal space. Yeah. No, it's, it's a really haunting, it's a really haunting moment and a haunting there's a lot of kind of poetic connection. So I don't know. I did, you know, to go back to your question, I do think that it is a, a key metaphor, but it's almost a key device too. It's almost like the sea and the diving become these um, hinge points at which the dives, certain things happen, you know, during the encounter with the dive, certain things happen during the encounter with the ocean. And it is a quite abstract force that ends up having very literal consequences for the characters. Hmm. Can we actually just read a little bit of the Lydia passage? Because it was just so, so beautiful. Um, It goes, uh, At last they set down the chair near the water. 
Panting from the walk, Anna leaned her head against her sister's and watched a long wave form, stretching until it achieved translucence, then somersaulting forward and collapsing into creamy suds that act toward them over the sand, nearly touching the wheels of Lydia's chair. The strange, violent, beautiful sea. This was why she had wanted Lydia to see. It touched every part of the world, a glittering curtain drawn across a mystery. And it goes on in that vein. Um, and it's just, it's lovely. Like she, no one writes sentences like that, like like Egan does. What about Eddie's story, which is yeah. so strange and peculiar, this kind of South Sea adventure <laughs> with, the, with this kind of Melville sort of interlude where he's like got this, um, what is it, Nigerian, the, the, the first maid or whoever that he has. Oh, the this, bosun. The bosun that he From has. From like Somalia. And there, oh, and there are characters who literally get eaten by sharks in this book. Yeah. Which <laughs> cracks me up. But there's the whole drama of the like the ship, and then there's that incredible yeah. scene where all of the the ships are together, and he he sees them. I guess it's at dawn, or, or you know that like they sort of emerge from this kind of gloaming, and and then this crazy shipwreck story. It's so yeah. wild. I just I I just remember thinking, okay, so we're gonna go here because it had been so grounded before, and then it had turned mm-hmm. into this kind of, you know, manly uh, maritime adventure story, yeah. which was not what I expected. It's also right after Anna and Dexter, isn't it right after, soon after they finally consummated their 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 persona of attraction yeah. and then yeah. kind of parted ways and then we realized that Dexter is not long for the world and then we move far away <laughs> to yeah. the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. Which I was, you know, lurking on Goodreads and reading people's responses. And it was, this was very troubling. This was very hard for a lot of readers, um, this, this section. I kind of loved it, actually. Um, but I found it, it was like a, I had to wrench myself away from the immersive pleasures of the other story, which had just really gotten me. And then kind of pull back and switch gears to Eddie, who I'd almost just reconciled myself to you know, not knowing very much about what happened to him, only knowing through this search and this absence and understanding Dexter. I don't know. So it was really interesting that she chose to come back to him. Yeah. I mean, it made me just like, it kind of took my breath away just now thinking about it, how many genres are mashed together in this book that I was prepared to say, oh, this is just a traditional historical novel. It's Thanksgiving dinner, like hooray. Um, But like (laughs) there's the hard-boiled gangster stuff where you have characters saying things like, say, boy, like think (laughs) you should take a long walk off a short pier, buddy. (laughs) Like I don't that's not actually a line of dialogue. This this is kind of Edward G. Robinson dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, and then the sort of like poetic, tender family, mysterious stuff. And, and then, as you say, this like treasure island adventure with shark attacks and shipwrecks and, and being sort of stranded on a raft for days. And, and also just like the detail with which she describes how exactly one stays alive in those situations. Like yeah. she did so much research for every different aspect of this book. It's, it's kind of extraordinary. Um, but well, yeah, there's a it, racial piece to this too, right? Yeah. Where with the bosun, like they're they have to kind of they're they have a certain animosity, and then they kind of come together. But it's yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah, he has he has the direct encounter with the the huge thing that the rest of them are sort of mm-hmm. more peripheral to, mm-hmm. and, and it changes him. 
Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, that also makes sense too, because if I don't, a character calls the ocean like the 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 world of lost things or something, a landscape of lost objects, yeah. I think is the quote. And he is the sort of like definitive lost object for really? the first half of the <laughs> yeah. book. Yeah. So like he I guess like if he's like the Orlando Furioso moon dweller, like the 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 thing that goes and, and then is returned, like so he is the only person who's actually in the sea. Um I don't know. The but I, I guess that I, I like that decision on her part to like not allow all three of the characters to touch the touch the third rail, touch the sea. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of this section, Laura? Um I I I really liked it too. I mean I I was surprised by it. I I guess I kind of, you know, thought, okay, she found the watch, so I guess he really is dead. Like I spent a lot of time not being sure whether he was dead or not. And then thinking, okay, if the watch is there, then he must be dead. And then he's alive again. And, um, and he's, you know, off doing this completely other thing, which again, it pulls you away from Anna's story. But on the other hand, you know, it's not, you're not entirely sure where that's going to go. Right. And, um, because, you know, he's, he, Dexter's not going to leave his wife to be with Anna. And, um, <clears throat> And so, you know, this, that story had, was just kind of slightly idling a little bit. And so then suddenly you're in this ripping adventure yarn on the high seas and in the middle of a war. And, um, and <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was great and it felt completely believable. And then, I was just like, oh, well, God only knows what's going to happen next. <laughs> so I guess, so I guess, um, so I guess that, was really like the the fact that we she went to that and then at the point where that arc was playing itself out and you have the whole shipwreck and then they almost die and um then they're going to be rescued i mean that whole scene where like they lose this guy and then someone drinks salt water and they go crazy and they have to push them off the raft you know like the whole sort of drama of the the raft which is you know, just like one of the great story modes of all time. And, you know, it, it never is not compelling. Um, you, it's just in such a different register than the Brooklyn parts. And, yeah. and so, and you just think, how could this really be brought together? And I guess it kind of makes sense that it comes together in San Francisco, which is sort of a mix of the two. The, or the Bay Area, rather, sort of a mix of the two modes of the sort of home front mode and then the sort of wild blue yonder mode of the, of the seafaring tale. Well, in the sort of world of new possibilities yeah. in some way, sort of, you know, mm-hmm. frontier in, in, in a way, even in this stage. And it's a trip, you know, Anna has to take a train trip there. She, she's become pregnant um, with, with Dexter's child. And so she has to construct a fiction in which she leaves her life behind, which mimics what her father did, yeah. right? She has to kind of abandon her old life and sort of tell a false story and create a new life, not quite as radically as her father did, but pretty radically. And she's a moment on the train on her way out there where she's saying, so this is how he did it. Um, so it sort of brings everything together at the very end there in a way that I actually found very believable. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I found a little bit odd about Anna 
is her complete lack of sort of sexual feeling or motivation until yeah. she's actually sleeping with Dexter. Like she goes out with the kind of um, fast girl now and, um, and that relationship is depicted, as you said, Megan, really complexly and truthfully, but she doesn't seem to have a, you know, for, you know, for a young woman, she seems kind of neutered in a certain yeah. way. It's really, I thought so too. That, those are some of the moments where I kind of found her less dimensional or real. Um, and I couldn't tell if it was that she was so preoccupied with by Lydia that that was her, I don't know, that was in a way where her otherwise romantic longings might have gone, that there's sort of the, the, the tension and longing was all surrounding Lydia. I don't know. I don't know. What or just that the disappearance of her father right. is such a betrayal that she can't. But she doesn't like ever have the the sort of yen that you know would war against that emotional guardedness yeah yeah and i'm not really sure what that decision was about except that it if the if she had it would have made her a person who could not necessarily have had that liaison with dexter and then taken off across country with only her crazy aunt right Who's yeah. another pretty great character? Yeah, I loved her, Brienne. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I kept imagining her being played by the actress who plays Brienne of Tarth and Game of Thrones. <laughs> I just could not stop thinking of her as being played by that actress, and which made it particularly um, uh, funny because that actress is a giantess, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I actually didn't feel like. It was a missing piece in her. I just sort of felt, oh, maybe this is like a less sexual woman. Um, but there is that passage where she speculates that her dad left because she like failed to sort of uh, push down her inherent like sinfulness. You know, she lost her virginity when she was 14 in like an apple storage shed. And, yeah. And yeah. she feels like she's always been framed as the or seen as the good girl and yet she has this kind of like roiling depth within her that no one knows about and maybe her dad sort of uh, sniffed it out and that was why he left because he was disappointed or upset She she has this, her one, her whole sex life before this this one night with Dexter is that is like takes place in this dark room with someone she yeah. barely talks to and she's not so talk about like the underworld you know it's really relegated yeah. to like a a kind of a part of her of life that it can't even be seen you know that it's just in, invisible and I it's mean, I guess, v- really strange it is and i guess you do get the sense that she's further suppressed it because of that connection mm-hmm. between she draws between her father leaving and having had sex or the sort of that part of herself. So it felt like there was this idea of repression being floated somehow. I find this novel is not what I would call a talker. You know, it's yeah. not a mm-hmm. book that when you finish mm-hmm. it, you feel like you really need to talk to someone about it. Mm-hmm. You know, you really know. need to hash out what it means. It just kind of nestles inside of you and just has has this kind of... You, I guess what you were saying before, Katie, that there's something kind of pre-verbal about the power that it has, and 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 you don't want to, 
you know, get together. I mean, I, it's, it's probably the most anti-book club book I could yes. imagine. I actually, I said that to my aunt over the weekend. I said, this is a book for readers, but not book critics. Yeah. And she yeah. was like, oh, so do you not like it? And I said, no, I love it. I'm a reader, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess maybe if we just want to go around and say whether uh, we'd recommend it to other readers. And it sounds like this is uh, a foregone <laughs> oh conclusion, God, yes. but let's do the ritual anyway. <laughs> um, Megan, would you recommend this book? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think it's really worth reading and very satisfying and all that. Yes. What about you, Laura? Oh, absolutely. I keep recommending it to people and I'm having, I have the hardest time talking them into it, but satisfying is actually the word Dwight Garner used. And I was so mad because I did read his review before I wrote mine. And I was like, I can't say satisfying because that <laughs> is really like, you know, you, when you're done, you feel like, ah, oh, that just did everything that I needed it to do. You know, and and it's very it's you know, it's you, you really have to sort of call in all of your chips with the people that you recommend books to, you know, <laughs> you just say, really do it, do it, just do it on, on trust, you know, and so far I have not really succeeded. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe somebody well, listening to this read my review and decided to read it on the basis of that. I hope so. <laughs> Um, your review definitely made me want to read it. Um, but yes, I'll add my vain and futile voice to the chorus. Do read it. If you like Thanksgiving, you'll like this book. (laughs) It's good for the soul. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, guys. This was really fun. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Talk soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the audiobook club. Next month's book will be Emily Wilson's translation of The Odyssey. If you like this show, you should check out a brand new Slate show, If Then, is a podcast about technology, society, and power. Each week, Slate's April Glazer and Willa Ramis take you on a lively tour of the tech news that actually matters, from fake news in your Facebook feed to the algorithms that want your job to the Uber drivers who want benefits. Find If Then wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slate ABC. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, which helps other people discover the show. Slate's Audiobook Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all of our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai, Andy Bowers is our chief content officer, and Afim Shapiro provided engineering assistance. This podcast was produced and edited by the wonderful Benjamin Frisch. For Laura Miller and Megan O'Rourke, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>